And I hope you have your Bible with you this morning. I'm telling you, this is a promise. If this promise is ever broken, I want you to yell at me as much as you possibly can. You will never ever come to this church and hear a message that's not rooted and grounded in God's Word. There's just nothing else that God has given us that has the power to transform lives like His Word. So please bring your Bibles. If you, for whatever reason, didn't bring your Bible, there should be one right in the back of that pew. If you could grab that. There's a lot of text this morning that we're going to be covering. If you know my preaching style, I really don't like having to take big clumps of Scripture. You just miss too much. But this morning, to keep with the pace of Mark's Gospel, we're going to look at 21 verses. We're going to look at Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20. And if you, if you have heard the expression, then complete it for me, out of the frying pan and into... Now, this is interesting for me at least. This is what gets me juiced up during the week. I, I kind of like discovering these little things. In the second century Greek... The expression was this, out of the smoke and into the flame. But the Italians would say it this way, to fall from the frying pan into the coals, the Gaelic people, out of the cauldron into the fire, the French, to leap from the frying pan into the fire. All versions, all forms have the same meaning. Here's what it is. It's to escape one predicament by leaping into another one that's just as bad or worse. Out of the frying pan and into the fire. Well, it sure seems like that's what's happening with the little church called the disciples. Underneath their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you remember what they just came through? If you were here last week, then you remember the Sea of Galilee, that freshwater lake 13 miles long, 8 miles wide, prone to horrific, sudden, nearly instantaneous storms. 20-foot waves were not uncommon. 70, foot, 70 miles per hour winds, not uncommon. And one of these storms comes against them. They sailed. They began sailing after a long day and a balmy evening. And all of a sudden, Jesus, sleeping in the rear of the boat, the stern of the boat, the steadiest part of the boat, the storm comes up. Now, you've got to remember, and we're not going to look back too much, but you've got to remember, these are seasoned, some of them are seasoned fishermen. This is what their whole life has been about and they're terrified believing and thinking that they're going to drown and they wake up jesus and if you remember the story from last week they wake up jesus not with lord would you please silence the storm but don't you even care that we're about to die why did they go right to god why don't you care friends that's our nature that's our flesh we suspect God, we hold Him in suspicion. And yet Jesus stands up, wakes up, stands up, rebukes the wind. The wind was what's causing the waves. Waves are mostly caused by wind. He re goes right to the root cause. He rebukes it in His power. And then He deals with and subdues the waves. If you've been on the ocean, and we've got some sailors here that have sailboats. If you've been on the ocean, you know when the storm's over, the waves aren't. It takes a while for the, the, calm, the waters to calm down, but not when Jesus' Jesus' power is being exercised. The wind was immediately stilled. The waves were immediately stilled. And a great calm, what the Bible says metaphorically, is the expression for peace. 
Great calm came over the waves. Great peace came into their hearts. We've all been in or will be in storms of life. But we're not going to start in Mark chapter 5. You see, that's what they came out of. That was the frying pan. What they're going to step into is going to seem like a fire. And wait till you hear what happened. Can you turn? Keep your finger in Mark 5. Can you open back? And right to, go right to the middle of your Bible and just back to the left a little bit to Job chapter 1. I want to show you something that's going to sort of get us ready for this message. Job chapter 1, just to the left of the Psalms, right, which is right in the middle of your Bible. Job chapter 1, you probably know the story or you may be pretty familiar with it. Starts in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And guess who's with them? Satan. Satan is the former archangel, the second right below Jesus. His job, we believe, is to be the worship director. You know what worship director means? Literally, as the phrase says, you direct worship to God. Well, you know what? Satan got a little bit of taste of that. He wanted to start rerouting it to him. So Satan came also among them. Verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Why does God ask questions? Well, your, your immediate answer might be to get information. But friends, parents, listen, that's not only the only reason we ask questions, is it? Don't you ask your children questions? Why did you hit your brother? You already know why. You saw the whole thing. You want to drive them to the deeper part of their heart. You want to get them to, the, to the, the, the desire level, the demand level where sin lives. And you want to get them there and questions bring out of the heart what is really the truth. And so God asks questions not because he lacks information. He's got an agenda to this question. Look what Satan says and you're going to know the agenda. Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it, from going east to the west and north and south. You know, here's the interesting thing. Satan got a taste of that worship, wanted it for himself, led a third of the angels in rebellion against God. God in his omnipotent power squashed that rebellion, cast Satan and those demons, fallen angels, unclean spirits, right to the earth and established their boundaries, east and west, north and south. That's the only place they could go now. I was in North Carolina years ago. We went to a zoo, and there was a brown bear in a cage. And we were there watching this for probably 20 minutes. And the entire time we were there, this beast, dangerous beast, walked back and forth, back and forth, restless, never stopping. This is Satan. That's what he does. You see, here's what God is doing, I believe, in this question. He's really saying, Satan, where are you coming from? And Satan has to answer, God, I'm coming from right where you put me. I'm in your leash. And I'm in your cage. And I hate even answering that question. And God sticks it to him again in chapter 2, the same exact question, eliciting the same exact response. Here's the point. God is in utter control. Of Satan and Satan knows it well you go to the New Testament and you begin seeing the religious leaders that hated Jesus and they began seeing these miracles and how he was dispossessing people of unclean spirits these same fallen demons 
And they're saying, well, he gets his power from Beelzebub. That is another name for Satan. He gets his power from the great evil one. And Jesus says in Luke 11.20, but if it is by the finger of God... Have you ever heard that phrase before in the Bible? Do you remember hearing it? Do you remember Egypt? Do you remember Exodus? Do you remember the people that God was about to free? Do you remember that God chose Moses and his spokesperson Aaron? And he gave Aaron the power to do ten miraculous plagues. And the magicians, the servants of the Pharaoh, were able to duplicate some of, some of those plagues. And they got to this one plague. Aaron you know, extended his, his staff over the dust, and the dust turned to gnats. And gnats gets in, get in your clothes, and they get all over your livestock. And it's horribly uncomfortable, and it's terrible. And Pharaoh says to his magicians, you do that. Let me see you do that. And they take the dust and they try to turn it into gnats and they were unable to do it. Here's what the Bible says. That the magician said, Exodus 8, they reported back to the Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. You see, the word finger means power. Jesus is saying, this is the power of God. Now here's my point, and now we're about ready to get into the text. The same power that God had to subdue Satan north, south, east, and west in his cage. Mark says it's the same power that the Son of God has. It's the power of God, the finger of God, by which he is casting demons out. The event begins in chapter 5. Now that we've got that in our mind, in our minds, now we climb into verse 1 and we read, They came to the other side of the sea. The storm had passed to the country of the Gerasenes. We don't know what time of the day it was, but we do know roughly it takes about two hours for one of those fishing boats to get across the lake. Now, we don't know. Nobody's given us a timetable. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all capture this story. None of them tell us it's important to know the time, so we don't think it's important either, right? If you're going to be a student in the Word, your boundary is exactly what God tells you. What's the revealed Word reveal? We don't know the time, but we know they came through that storm. They landed on the other side of the lake. They're on the eastern side. They started from the western side, which is a predominantly Jewish area, and they sail across and then row across and survive the storm, and they come out on the shores of the eastern side. Now listen, this is important. It's predominantly a Gentile area. A Gentile means a non-Jew. You're not born into the Jewish race. You're a Gentile. And they go to this Gentile area, and it's a rural area. It's a country area. It's a beautiful area of the Lake of Gal- the Sea of Galilee. It's away from the bustle of ministry. It's a time to rest. It's a time to slow down. It's a time to let the teachings of Jesus, followed by the demonstration of His power, sift themselves down into the hearts of those disciples. But that's not going to be what happens. Verse 2, Jesus had stepped out of the boat. Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now, here's why we're in the, the Gospel of Mark this summer. Mark's got such a unique writing style. I love it. He, I think he wrote this Gospel just for me because this is the way I think. He just is going fast paced. He's got more details in the stories than Matthew and, and Luke ever put in. 
And here we go. He's got, he introduces verses one and two. They make it to the eastern side. They step out of the boat. And here comes this man with an unclean spirit. And then in writer's professional style, he gives you three verses of background on this man. Here's what his life was like. Now I want you to think, what would this man's life be like? This man with an unclean spirit. Well, here's what it was like. Verse three, he lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore. Anymore means he was progressively growing stronger. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to, to, to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. Now, if you're going to really grasp, and if we're going to be successful this morning in really seeing the heartbeat of Jesus, that's the goal of this summer series, then you've got to get deeper than the pages of the Scripture. You've got to get down into the life. Listen, this man's life was basically over. And here comes God on a rescue mission. Right through a storm, and you're going to see he landed and left in a matter of probably minutes, maybe a couple hours. This is a rescue mission because he loves this man. All right, so let's back up and get back into the text, and we're going to come back to that thought. To a Jew, nothing was more unclean than death. A dead body was as unclean spiritually as you could be. Because death was the greatest result, it was the cataclysmic response of sin. Death was the ultimate, and this man lived among the tombs right in the cemetery, which you were forbidden as a Jew to even touch. If you did, you were rendered spiritually unclean. You would have to go to a priest. You would have to sacrifice. They'd have to sprinkle on you blood to make you clean again. This man lived, not just visited, lived among the tombs night and day, Mark says, among the tombs. He had supernatural strength. He was self-abusive. He was animal-like. He was naked. He lived in debauchery. And, and now we focus a little bit more deeply. We take a pause and we see that, wait a minute, oh, th this is more than just a story about a man who is possessed by a demon. This is really a picture, as are all of Mark's stories, it's a picture of the gospel. Listen, if you've ever read this story and you've just fixated on the man and and just wonder, wow, what an, an incredible miracle that God, God rescued this man. I mean, that's great. But this is even greater. This is a picture of the gospel. Guess what, friends? Before you put your trust in Christ, you were this man. So wasn't I. Well, you might not have been bound by shackles. I get that. But you were under the shackles and the bondage of sin just like I was. And the moment you put your faith in Christ, He opened that bar cell of sin, that door of, of sin, that, that cell door, and He walked you out or He's beckoning you to walk out, but you're free and you're free not to live any way you want. That's one of the things we've got to get into our minds. We're a freed people, but we're not free to live any way we want. We're free to live to serve God. This is a picture of the gospel. A man who was unclean lived among the tombs. It's us. We were unclean and we were separated from God and we were under bondage 
to sin. And if somebody doesn't rescue us, we have no hope. You know, the world of demonic possession is very, very real. But it mimics often severe mental illness. You know, one time when I was in living in Virginia, before Denise and I got married, my friends Kyle and Dan and I, we went to church one Sunday. And after church, we heard that Kyle and Dan's former condominium burned down, right where they used to live. It just caught on fire. They had moved out and it burned down. So we said, let's go over and look at that. So we did, and we walked into the condominium complex, and there it is, burned and charred, still smoking. And there's a man up in the third story, nothing on from the waist up, that's all I could see. Long, scraggly hair. By the way, that's not a symptom of demon possession, just want to tell you. And I hollered up to him. I said, can you tell us what happened? He looked at me, shouted down, it burned. That's reasonable. (laughs) Technically, he's correct. I said, okay, can you tell me how it burned? And he said, it burned down. At that point, we realized he's not going to tell us. So we turned and walked away. Now listen, you've got to get this. We We weren't carrying a Bible. Nobody had a fish symbol on their shirt. There was nothing obvious that we were Christians. But as we turned and walked away, and here is a symptom of demon possession. He began hurling swear word after curse word, not to us, but to Jesus Christ. One after another, we finally left, and the only way he stopped was when we got out of earshot. Listen, demonic possession always wants to get to the ultimate victory, and that is the denigration of Christ's name. And here we've got this picture of this man that is demon-possessed, but today nobody really talks about demon possession. If you open up the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, that's, every psychiatrist has it. I've got one in my office. It's huge, it's thick, and it's the, the diatribe, it's the classification of all mental illnesses that they've ever figured out. And if you open that up, you won't find anywhere in there talking about demon possession. It's all about the brain and how your body's not secreting the hormones in the right ways. That's where psychiatry is today. But C.S. Lewis in his book, and some of us have read it, the screw tape letters, here's what he writes. There are two equal in opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. He's talking about us. One is to disbelieve in their existence. There's a lot of us there. But the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And there's a lot of us there. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and they hail a materialist. That's the one that doesn't believe in anything supernatural. Only what you can touch. And the magician... The one who believes and lives in the supernatural with the same delight. Here's the point, friends. If Satan cannot pull you down, he will just as happily push you over. Meaning this, if you're not going to believe in devils and demons, he's happy about that. Just as happy as he is if you become obsessive with it and seeing a demon under every rock. There's a balance there, and the balance rides on the plumb line that there are such things as unclean spirits, but they are under the control of our omnipotent Lord. He is God. 
over them. So here comes this demoniac living in the tombs, and he comes down these rocky shores to meet Jesus and, let's put it in the right terminology, the young church. And they step onto the banks, and here comes this man, not to welcome them. This isn't the mayor saying, welcome Jesus to Gerasen shores. He's not there on a representative of goodwill. He's there, and the word met, look in your word, look in the scriptures. He met them, and that's a military word that usually refers to a hostile meeting. This demon hates Jesus. And he's coming, controlling this man, not in a welcome manner, but as a soldier who grudgingly knows that he's in the presence of a superior being, one who far outranks him. And if you look at verse 6, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And then you go back to the Greek and you see fell down before him. Wow, that's one Greek word. It means to worship. So, Tim, are you telling me that this demon came to worship Jesus? Hardly. See, in the ancient Persian style of greeting people, listen, here, this is cool. I told you this last Christmas, that if you greet somebody that is on the same rank as you are, you kiss them on the lips. Isn't that disgusting? I'm so glad I'm your pastor. You're below me in some form. <laughs> Except for my wife. She's above me. No, I'm just kidding. But if you're, you're in the presence of somebody that just slightly outranks you, then you kiss on the cheek. But listen, if you come into the presence of somebody that greatly outranks you, here's what you do. You fall down. This is a Persian style of greeting. You fall down on your knees. You put your forehead to the ground. And you throw kisses at the one who outranks you. We see most of the latter one happening. He falls down before Jesus, not in an attitude of worship, but in the prostrate, prostrate style of knowing that you're in the presence of someone that so far outranks you. But it's nothing new. Listen, this is what happens all the time. Mark chapter 3, verse 11 says this, Whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before Him and cried out, You are the Son of God. They knew who Jesus was. They, they knew the right response. They could not even stop themselves from falling down before him. It was a compulsory movement of their beings in the presence of Jesus Christ. And the demon asked Jesus, what have you to do with me, Jesus, in verse 7? And that's really the question, Jesus, what are you going to do with me? What's going to happen to me? And he goes back and forth between singular and plural pronouns. Verse 9, my name is Legion, for we are many. My, we. And really, here's what you kind of think is happening. First of all, the word legion, anybody know what that means? How many soldiers are in a Roman legion? 6,000 plus support personnel. Friends, listen, don't take this literally. It may be 6,000 demons in there. We don't know, but I don't believe it's met, meant Literally, I think it's metaphorical. There was a whole platoon of demons in this man. That's why he's so strong. But it's almost like there was one demon that was more powerful than the others, and he was the spokesman, and that's why he's saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. It's like he's the general of all this platoon of, of demons that's in him. That's my best guess. It seems like that's accurate. And how meaningful it is that Jesus demanded the demon's name. Why? Well, listen, to the disciples, now remember, you're there now. You're in this little church. 
And here comes this demoniac running towards you, no clothes, spittle flying, shrieking, in a hostile manner. What are you going to do, friends? What's going to happen in your heart? You think you're going to be there stoic and calm? You just came out of a near-death experience. Your adrenaline's still flowing. But they don't know that there's a platoon of legions. They don't know there are demons. They don't know there's a legion of demons in this man. Jesus knows that. They don't. So Jesus asks his name. And all of a sudden, the faith of this little church is going to grow even more because now they're going to know Jesus has a power not only over one demon, over a whole legion of them. So the demon, demonic, the demoniac tells him his name and what happens next seems puzzling in verse 10. It seems like Jesus is parlaying with the demons and he begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. You know what Matthew says in his account of this story? Here's what the demons were here's what the demoniac was saying in Matthew's account. What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us, listen, before the time? Luke gives us another clue. He wrote in his account, the demon begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. How do you take sense of all of that? You know, Revelation 20, verse 1 tells us there's such a thing as a bottomless pit. And friends, that's a precursor to the lake of fire. Do you know what the bottomless pit is like? It's just what it, its word means. It literally means you go in there and you fall and you fall and you will never, ever hit the bottom. And it's where these demons are going to be put. It's the abyss that they are afraid of being thrown into and then pulling out. One day will come when Jesus Christ will judge the world and He will judge Satan and He will judge these unclean spirits and He will pull them out of that abyss and He will put them right into the lake of fire for eternity. Jude describes it this way, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, the ones that uprose against God, they left their proper dwelling. He's kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And the demoniac is saying, we know our future, Jesus, but it's not time yet for our judgment. We've got more time. And, and technically, they were correct. It wasn't time for judgment. It wasn't time to take them out of that gloomy dungeon of the abyss and put them into the lake of fire. Technically, they were correct. But they can't do anything without Christ's permission. So they begged Him, it says in verse 12, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And Jesus does. Do you know why I think he did that? It was to give undeniable proof to his little church and to those in the Gerasene region that those demons were out of that man. And he is the omnipotent Son of God. They go into those pigs, and you know the story, the pigs... And the herd, numbering about 2,000, verse 13, rushed down the steep limestone banks. That's what's on that part of the, the Sea of Galilee. 
right into the sea and they were drowned in the sea. Undeniable proof, this is the Son of God. And it's here that we shift our thinking just a little bit. And what I haven't told you yet, now listen, if you're going to be a student of the Word of God, you've got to remember something. If you're reading a passage and there's a word that keeps repeating itself, you're getting a clue as to the original intent of the author and the intent of God. The word that keeps repeating itself three times in this passage is the word begged. First, we've seen the demons begging Jesus to send them to the pigs, and He does. He lets them enter those pigs, and now we're going to shift a little bit, and we're going we're to move a little bit quicker, and we're going to start reading. The herdsmen fled, the ones that were keeping those pigs, and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. You see, the town heard about this, and they rush out to see for themselves, and they see the man that they all knew of. Nobody wanted to go near him. And they see him there, who used to be naked, now he's clothed, who used to be restless night and day, now he's sitting there in peace, who used to be crying out and bruising himself and cutting himself, now he's sitting there in his right mind. And what do they do? What would you do? Would you be amazed or appalled? They began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. I mean, what an opportunity to bring your sick family members, your sick relatives that need healing to the one that has displayed and demonstrated the power to be able to do it, and they beg him to leave. Not just once, over and over, imploring him, please, please leave. They saw the power of the Son of God and they wanted nothing to do with him, and it seems almost inexplicable until Luke and his account tells us a bit, a bit of a clue, and he says they were seized with great fear. You remember earlier in the beginning of this series, we saw the worshipers in that synagogue who witnessed Jesus expelling a demon from a man. They started a discussion group about it. Wow, this is really interesting. Let's talk about how that could have happened. They didn't fall at his feet. They didn't worship him. They wanted to form a small group. And here they beg and they implore and they plead with Jesus, please just leave us. You see, their hearts were utterly closed. They could not see. They could not hear the gospel that was just demonstrated. Now, you've got to go back to the chapter before if you're going to really understand this. See, Jesus had just spent all day preaching the day before this. And do you remember what he was preaching about? He was preaching about sowing the seeds of the gospel. And he said there's some hearts that are like stony ground and, and the seed sits there on the surface and birds, which are Satan and demons, come down and they pluck the seed before it can go below the surface and die and germinate and bring life. But some other hearts, the seed can get in there, but it's rocky a little bit. It's a little bit of soil. It's very thin and it'll get there but there's no there's no deep root system so you start out like wow i'm really excited this guy just cast out demons and the pigs went running 
all of a sudden difficulty comes and it chokes out the gospel and they turn away from Christ. And then there's another group. And this group, they, they, get, they get the seed in there and they begin to respond. And, but all of a sudden they love the world. And what do you mean there's difficulty? What do you mean if I follow you, people are going to hate me? What do you mean I'm going to be persecuted? They don't want anything to do with Jesus, but they're, thank God, as a fourth group. I trust you're in it. This fourth group, the seeds of the gospel were sown and they went down deep. So deep that the seed died on the cross. And the blood watered it to life. New life. As it broke upon the surface of the kingdom of God. It began to grow and it began to spread the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, goodness. All these fruit all of a sudden growing on its vines and people, your family and your neighbors and your co-workers, your classmates, eating of this fruit and developing a taste for Jesus. Saying if that's what a person that looks, that's, if that's what a person that loves Jesus looks like, that's what I want. That's the fourth group. Listen, we've got two groups playing out here. We've got the first group, the herdsmen in the city. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus despite the incredible display of power. Their hearts were hard. The seeds of the gospel just did not penetrate. But not the one who was set free by the mercy of Jesus. And we turn to him and we see the third time that we see somebody begging Jesus in this account. Here's what it says. And as he was getting into the boat, verse 18, the man who had been possessed with demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. Friends, there were so many demons in that man. Literally, he was submerged below them. He had no identity. He had no life. Here comes Jesus all the way across that lake. It's an in and out rescue mission, just like you see in the Marines. He freed this man and left. And I can only wonder at the former demoniac's desire to stay with him. I mean, why wouldn't he want to? I mean, most simply, think think like this man for a second. Would the residents of that town ever, ever believe him and trust him and accept him? Come on, people lived in fear of you for probably years. They avoided where you lived in the tombs and the cemeteries. You hurt people. You destroyed things that people owned. You think they're ever going to love you? Would he always be looked at as the former madman who wreaked havoc on that town? I mean, that's at least so simply why I would imagine he wanted to go. But then another part of me remembers that when I was youth pastoring... Every single time we would come back from a a retreat, all the kids would tell me the same thing. Pastor Tim, we don't want this to end. We don't want to go home. And why they didn't want to go home was because something happened to them. They felt closer to God than they ever did. The muck of the world wasn't taking them away from their love for Jesus. But they knew that if they get back home, they're going to lose this again. I want to stay on fire for Jesus. You know, that was part of one of the main things we did in youth ministry was helping kids realize you can still walk with God closely in your normal life the same way you just did this past weekend. Let's do it together. 
Yet Jesus, in his wisdom, would not permit this man to go. Look what he says. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Friends, listen, this is so imperative. This is where I've been driving to. This is the main part of this message. Are you hearing Jesus? Because he is speaking to you and he's speaking to me. This is what the gospel says to you. He doesn't tell you, go home and get trained in seminary. And don't go out and exposit Romans. And don't get up there and preach the gospel behind the pulpit. He just simply tells, and, and all that's good. If God leads you to seminary, great. If he, teaches, if, he, if he gives you the gifts of teaching, fantastic. But that's not what he's saying to every one of us. He's saying, listen, just tell people what I've done for you. That's all. That's all I want you to do. And by the way, you don't need to go across the world to do it. If I lead you across the world like I'm leading these 12, that's great. I've got them in my boat and I'm going to do great things. They're going to spread the gospel. But listen, you, I just freed you. I want you to stay right where you are and just tell people what I've done. Because these people need the gospel. Now listen, let's be utterly truthful for a moment. Don't you hear God telling you that in your jobs? Don't you hear Him saying that in your neighborhood? Don't you hear Him saying that in your college and in your school? It's not complicated. Just simply tell people what I've done for you. Just be my witness. And you're going to watch the seeds of the gospel go so deep into the hearts of people. And it's going to bring a harvest for the kingdom of God. My fruit is going to grow on your life. And people are going to get a taste of me. And he went away and began to preach. Began to proclaim. Began to testify. In the Decapolis, the Gerasenes was one of ten cities. He did it right where he lived. How much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Listen, you want people to be amazed at your life. Don't think your career is going to do it. Don't think a power position is going to do it. And don't think a big house and a fancy car will do it. That lasts about that long. You want to amaze people, then show them what Jesus looks like through the way that you live and just tell them what Jesus has done for you. That's all he's calling you to do. It's not that hard, but it does take boldness. Amen. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this story. Lord, thank you that you have freed us Thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you, Father, that you have given us a mission and a purpose. You've given us a reason to live. Lord, we need to tell people. We need to speak, not just show. We need to speak to people about what you have done for us. That's the power of our testimony. We love you. We pray for boldness. We pray for courage to do just that very thing, even beginning immediately. We ask for your help in that. In Jesus' name, amen.